0: Hello and welcome back to Leader Up, a podcast of Army Management Staff College. Leader Up is a professional conversation where we discuss a broad range of leadership and leader development topics with an emphasis on the Army civilian professional. I'm your host, David Howard. On today's episode of Leader Up, our guest is going to be Major Ryan Cornell Desher. And uh, Ryan is an instructor in the Department of Enterprise Leadership. And the Department of Enterprise Leadership teaches the uh, CES Advanced course. And today we're going to talk to uh, Ryan about a really interesting topic. And the the title of this podcast is Good Leaders Ask Better Questions. And so we're going to be talking about different types of questions, why questions are asked and how asking the not the right question uh can cause a little bit of uproar in an organization. And so Ryan, thank you so much for giving us your time and being with us today on Leader Up. Thanks, David. Looking forward to the conversation. Okay, and I, I am also and so let's let's just start with a little bit of your personal professional background, uh what you've done in the Army and what what kind of your role is uh, in the advanced course. Sure, David. So
1: uh, I've been in the Army for about 15 and a half years at the time of this recording. I commissioned through uh, ROTC as a transportation officer. Uh, I've spent all my company grade years as a, as a lieutenant and a captain in uh, force comm units. I was in brigade combat teams, did my company command at Fort Drum. I've been to Iraq a couple of times. I've done one tour in Afghanistan uh, I have some prior teaching experience. I taught the uh, logistics captain's career course at Fort Lee when I was a senior captain. Uh, after CGSC, I did my key developmental time at Fort Carson, and then I've come here to the uh, advanced course in uh, 2020. So I've been here for uh, over two years at this point, point. Um, and at the advanced course, uh, I'm a facilitator, For any of the modalities that we have, so whether that's on a mobile education team, uh, a virtual course, or the resident course here at Fort Leavenworth. So uh, I design, develop, and uh, deliver curriculum to uh, Army civilian professionals, and our target audience is uh, civilians in the grade of uh, GS 13 through 15 or equivalent grades, where we prepare them to lead and manage large organizations.
0: And so today uh, on this episode of Leader Up, we're going to talk a little bit about the classroom, uh, but we're going to focus a lot on uh, what happens in an organization regarding leaders and their questions. And so I want to start with a quote, uh, and I'll just read this, and and I'm going to let you talk about where it came from and kind of what it means. And here's the quote. Once you have learned how to ask questions, relevant and appropriate and substantial questions you have learned how to learn and no one can keep you from learning whatever you want or need to know and so where's that quote from and and what does it mean and how is it relevant to this discussion that we're going to have today so that quote
1: is by a couple of authors and educators named neil postman and charles weingartner So this statement was made back in the early 1970s. So there was a somewhat controversial book that they published called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. And what Neil and Charles were arguing for uh, was for more inquiry-based education. They believed that in many schools, most of the curriculum was trivial and not relevant to students' lives. So this inquiry-based education that they argued for, under that construct, students are encouraged to ask questions that are meaningful and specific to them. And teachers should avoid giving direct answers in favor of asking more questions. They wanted to create an environment where people are comfortable in not having an easy answer to all of their questions So it's a little bit of a variation of the classical Socratic methods, uh, but ultimately the goal here is to get students to take control of their learning and help people think for themselves, which is the
0: best way that they thought that would prepare them for all the challenges ahead that life would bring. And we're going to see kind of the same thing in organizations with regard to leaders, managers, and subordinates is that we want people to be curious and we want people to ask questions and we want the questions to produce a a bigger good, a greater good um, for the organization. And so one of the things that that I've heard you talk about, and you and I had a conversation a while back, uh, and let's start with this phrase that, and I've heard this also, and the phrase seems very innocuous, very simple, quote, I wonder dot, dot, dot. And so how does that starting a question off with that, I wonder, how can that be problematic and what kind of problems can that cause? That's a great question, David. So I've experienced this myself.
1: I've got plenty of personal scar tissue there. Some of our students in the advanced course have shared that they've had similar experiences of their own. Uh, And even a couple of the senior executive service leaders that we've had uh, have also shared that that's something they have to be on guard against themselves. So at any level, but even more so as you become more senior uh, and become more influential, it's really important for leaders to choose their words carefully. So whenever a leader asks a question, that question creates work. And sometimes that work might divert time and effort and labor away from existing priorities. So, uh, if you'll indulge me to give you a, a quick scenario that actually one of our SESs shared with one of my seminars uh, a few months ago. So, imagine that the commanding general on an installation uh, goes to visit a unit's motor pool, wants to assess how their maintenance program is going, uh, and they are walking the line past all these tactical vehicles. Uh, And at one point, the general makes this innocuous comment. So I wonder how many of our trucks are green and how many of them are tan. Doesn't say anything else. And the walk continues. A few days later, uh, some staff officer presents the commanding general's deputy with some elaborate cost estimate for a contract to repaint every vehicle in the division. It took a lot of work took a lot of research, took a lot of time. And the boss doesn't respond well for this. What is this? I never asked for this. I never wanted this. So we wasted a lot of time producing something that the boss never wanted or even asked for in the first place. So there's a lot of potential for some of these statements to send people on a wild goose chase or just put them into a tailspin, because as leaders, your words carry so much weight. So I believe it's important for a leader to distinguish like a genuine request, genuine guidance, a genuine direction from a rhetorical question. So when you make a statement like, I wonder, or another one I hear sometimes is, it might be nice if, stop and listen to yourself. Is this something you seriously want people to do? Is this something you seriously want people to find the answer to? Or is this just a a, a curiosity? So one of the best commanders that I'd served with was really observant, really self-aware. He knew how much weight his words carried. Every time he talked, people opened their books and started taking notes. And he would catch himself sometimes. I remember this. He would catch himself when he would say, I wonder. And he would see everyone look and start jotting things down. So he would stop himself. And then he would go in one of two directions. So he would be more precise with his language. And he would say, I would like to know if we can do X. Hey, Captain so-and-so, please look into that. Now you know this is something the boss wants. And sometimes he would go the other direction, and he might say, I'm interested to know more about X. And he would see people write it down, and he would say, hey, nobody needs to do anything right now. Just think about it. So what I would offer is, uh, if you work for a leader who is maybe not as precise with their language uh, not as self-aware, not as observant, uh, if they don't distinguish between what I call ideation versus foot stomps, uh, maybe have somebody else in the room uh, kind of do a recap before you all part ways. What do you believe all the homework to be? Uh, and that helps to get that clarity, create that shared
0: understanding, uh, and make sure that we're not burning ourselves out. And you've used this term, you and I have talked about this, this phrase, uh, accidental science project. And what is an accidental science project and where did that where did that phrase come from? Yeah, thanks, David. So uh,
1: that phrase came from uh, an article that I had read uh, on the website from the Green Notebook. And uh, really the context behind it is when you ask a question that sends people to go find the answer, uh, how long is it going to take to find the answer? How much effort is it going to take? How much energy is it going to take? But is it even relevant? Is is it pertinent? Is this something that that senior leader actually needs to make a decision? So one example I'd heard uh, last year, I was TDY to Fort Knox to try to help the army with some of its recruiting challenges. And we were coming up with uh, different matrices and products for briefing some of the senior leaders that we had engagements with. And uh, an expression our knowledge management officer kept telling us to be on guard against is, well, how many left-handed Paraguayans do we have? Um, And that was just, even though being said facetiously, but this expression, how many left-handed Paraguayans we had became parlance for uh, just throwing out a bunch of trivia and a bunch of details. Uh, Maybe there's somebody who needs to know that, but it's probably not something that that senior leader or that strategic leader needs uh, to make a judgment uh, or make whatever decision that they need. So think about giving that leader what they need uh, to make a decision, drive a decision, exercise their judgment. And all that detail about left-handed Paraguayans is something that should be below the line. Uh, But something leaders should be on guard against is, do you want anyone to go find out how many left-handed Paraguayans we have in the first place? Uh, Sometimes there's a little bit of courage in just becoming comfortable with knowing that something is worth not knowing because it just, it doesn't matter to the context that we're in. So that's an example of a, an accidental science project is if you say, how many left-handed Paraguayans do we have? But that information is not actually going to produce anything.
0: And is, is this uh, part of historical army culture, in your opinion, this idea that, um, especially in the United States Army, this desire to quantify everything, measure everything, and kind of a, a cultural response to not be the person who doesn't have the information that was just implied exists or it does exist, and all of a sudden you're on the spot because you're asked this question. And so the, the way to, to to battle that is to uh, quantify everything and, and have all of this data and information uh, ready at a moment's notice. But it, it – it, so – Number 1 is that do you think that's part of army culture have you seen that? And then number 2 is is that ex- can that be exhausting for for a staff or a staff officer uh, or an executive officer?
1: Um I would say yes to to both parts of that question. So uh, as we've become more connected, we've had better access to technology And greater bandwidth, I believe there's been at a commensurate rate, uh, there's just been more of a demand for information and you've just got to keep feeding the beast and feeding the beast and feeding the beast. And the army didn't always need so many metrics and so many stats and so many data points like PowerPoint was not a thing in World War II, for example. Um, So I do think that there has been an increase in that. And I do think that that takes a toll on the people who have to produce that information At the end of the day, of course, the staff works to support the commander of whatever organization you're in. But I think it's important just to recognize uh, how much bandwidth and energy and time do they have. It is finite. So what are some data points you're comfortable not knowing? uh, And where might you reach a point of uh, almost optimal ignorance where you become comfortable accepting knowing that something's not worth knowing? Uh, because the juice isn't worth the squeeze in terms of how long it takes to get these numbers or these data points versus how much
0: value that information is actually going to produce for me. And this this also kind of takes me back to mission command philosophy, where I'm I'm looking for the commander's intent. Uh, I'm I'm looking at trust. I'm looking at teamwork and things like that. And so uh, I'm like you said, there there comes a point where. Uh, there's freedom in letting go of all that and just trusting subordinates to do the right thing based off of an umbrella of my intent. Is that correct? Do you agree with that? Is that is kind of one another way to look at this topic?
1: Yes, I, I believe so. And what I would offer is, when you exercise mission command correctly, uh, you're including your subordinates in the decision-making process. And to relate this back to this idea of asking better questions. What I've experienced is a lot of my subordinates in previous organizations, they almost seem flattered whenever I ask them for their input or for their expertise. I think what some of them culturally are accustomed to in the army is whoever the officer in charge says is always, well, this is how it's going to be. This is what we're going to do because I'm the boss and tough if you don't like it that way. Um, My leadership style is more, well, Hey, Sergeant, what do you think? I mean, hey, Chief, what do you think? Uh, And where it gets really interesting is when you talk to the more junior members of your organization, like, hey, specialist, how would you like to do this? And when you're including them and inviting them uh, to participate in decision making, uh, it generally gets more buy in uh, from the team. And a lot of that will also relate to trust. And what I relate to trust is empowerment. So I believe empowering your subordinates doesn't mean giving them something to do. It means giving them something to own and letting them really own it, which a lot of leaders in my experience aren't very comfortable with because you have to be very comfortable with accepting some risk. So if I just say what needs to happen, I don't tell them how, and I trust them to go get after it. Sometimes they'll surprise me with their ingenuity and with the results that they produce Uh, And maybe they don't accomplish the task the exact way that I might have accomplished it. But as long as they're not doing anything unsafe, illegal, immoral or unethical, they're probably going to come up with a better solution than I would have, because they're the ones who have the information and they're the ones who are actually executing. Um, And even if uh, to paraphrase something that Jocko Willink had said before in his talks on extreme ownership, uh, even if I as the boss who's more experienced, have a 90 percent solution. And my subordinate only has a seventy percent solution. I should still go with my subordinate's seventy percent solution because their initiative, their ownership, and their pride in the fact that I trust them will make up for that missing twenty percent.
0: Absolutely, I and in time that seventy percent will turn into an eighty percent and maybe a ninety percent solution if if you uh, allow them the opportunity to learn and develop. And so let's let's go back to that. Kind of that example you gave earlier about the I wonder uh, how many trucks look like this and how many look like that. And so we're asking a commander or a leader to ask better questions and to consider uh, if they really need the information. So part of the uh, burden is on the commander, the person who's considering asking a question, but it's a two-way street. Because the subordinates likewise have responsibilities. And so, so this this dynamic that can happen, it is a mutually shared uh, concern regard, uh, with everybody that's involved. And so we talked a little bit about the leader or the commander, but what about the subordinates, the staff officer? What is it that they need to do back with that commander or that leader to make sure we don't end up with the accidental Science Project It's another great question, David.
1: so you're you're modeling good questions throughout this podcast. So uh, what I would offer is I agree that it's a two-way street and that ties back to shared understanding. So if you wanted to relate it back to this concept of mission command and commander's intent, I think it's even more effective when intent also works both ways. So I give intent to my subordinates, and then my subordinates give intent back to me. And they might say, well, this is how I intend to go about it. Because if I say, hey, Sergeant, how would you solve this problem? And then I let them tell me what they intend to do. And then you're getting away from this culture of people are just asking for permission all the time. Uh, People are going to feel safe that I trust them to get the job done. And I'll see them take a little bit more initiative. uh, And they'll feel this sense of psychological safety because they know I'm not going to chastise them over an honest mistake because a little bit of stumbling might happen. Uh, when we're trying to get creative or when uh, people who are less experienced are trying to figure things out on their own, but that's part of how they discover the answer. And that's part of how we help develop them and build the bench uh, and prepare them for future positions of increased responsibility. Uh, And then as far as uh, with questioning being a two way street, I think that one way as a leader, you can know what sort of climate or tone that you've set is how comfortable do your subordinates feel disagreeing with you uh, or questioning you or just requesting clarification on something. So if it were me, I would rather have my subordinates question what my expectations are than flounder about in uncertainty and maybe produce unsatisfactory results. So if we both ask each other questions uh, to come up to that shared understanding uh, and the other thing that this exchange of questioning can do uh, is it might reveal uh, some gaps or vulnerabilities in our plan. As we continue to ask, we're probably going to be digging deeper, uh, thinking a little bit more critically, uh, and that might reveal things to us that we weren't
0: aware of previously. And so even even that simple example that you talked about earlier, uh, I wonder how many trucks are painted tan and how many are painted uh, green. And so, if a subordinate hears that, uh, it's kind of incumbent on them to be able to go back and say, uh, "Sir or ma'am, you you brought this up about uh, how many trucks are painted this and that. Do you want us to uh, do an analysis of that? What what do you, what kind of information specifically would you like uh, us to gather about that topic?" And so. And you're right, though, sometimes a climate is such that there's a reluctance to uh, to asking a question like that back to the boss.
1: Yes, absolutely, uh, because I've been in plenty of organizations where uh, the boss just says, I wonder how many trucks are green and how many are tan, and the assumption is made, and we all operate on this gigantic assumption that this is something the boss wants, and now we have to staff this and package this and create some kind of deliverable. And sometimes that doesn't go so well because then you present it to the boss and he says, wait, I never even asked for this. Uh, And when you think about how a lot of senior leaders spend their day going from meeting to meeting and engagement to engagement and consuming information all day long, uh, some kind of innocuous offhand remark about the color of your vehicles, uh, that might not even be something they remembered asking. So bringing it back to them and saying, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, is this something that you wanted us to do? What are the expectations uh, that helps us come up to shared understanding? And maybe that's their chance to say, oh, that was just a rhetorical question, or I'm just curious. Or it might turn into some homework. And they say, yeah, I actually do want you to go find that out. But now at least you know you're doing something that's going to
0: be of value to that leader. Right. And they they that commander may actually need that. It may be something that, that uh, he or she really does need to get a hold of. Yes. Okay. Um, this, there's another phrase that, that you've used, and I love this. Uh, it is briefing empathy. And what is briefing empathy? And how does it relate to this conversation that we're having? Yeah, absolutely, David. So this is something that
1: I typically bring up with my students here at the advanced course, uh, and especially for Army civilian professionals of GS 13 through 15 or equivalent grades. Uh, Most of them work at very senior levels in the Army. Uh, Many of them uh, directly support uh, senior or strategic level leaders. So uh, with briefing empathy, what I ask people to do is to consider basically put themselves in the shoes of their audience. So consider the bandwidth, the schedule, the mood of the people that you're trying to address. So maybe set the conditions up front for that senior leader. This is for information, or this is to seek guidance, or this is to request some kind of a decision. So if you're able to set those conditions up front, Uh, that senior leader is probably going to receive all of your presentation differently based on what's expected of them. Is this just for information without the burden of having to make a decision? Uh, Or am I going to have to make a decision in the next few minutes that potentially uh, affects the entire army or that affects gigantic amounts of resources or thousands of people? So what you don't want to do is not set that expectation up front, uh, give them a whole bunch of information, and then at the end, put them on the spot with a slide that says guidance and a giant question mark because sometimes uh, that ends up not going too well. The other consideration of this is, I mean, how mind-pressed, time-pressed, and attention-pressed your audience probably is. So they probably don't have as much bandwidth as you realize, and we can make a bigger impact by saying less. The risk is you don't want to cut so deep that you miss the so what, or that you deprive that senior leader of the information that he or she truly needs to make a decision uh, or to form judgment. And on a more practical level with briefing empathy, uh, just thinking about time management. So what if you thought that you had an hour of the senior leader's time for some kind of a briefing or engagement, but they actually only have five minutes and then they're going to have to leave because something more pressing uh, bumped you off their calendar. So if you know this is for a decision, uh, set those conditions up front, and then when the time comes, they'll put their hand on the table, uh, make that decision, and uh, and move out. Uh, but that briefing empathy requires, uh, I believe, a lot of self-awareness, uh, a lot of emotional intelligence, uh, and just an ability to put yourself in the shoes uh, of that audience. And uh, going back to those accidental science projects, uh, if you only have five minutes of that boss's time, Before they make a decision, uh, you probably don't want to consume those five minutes with trivia about how many left-handed Paraguayans we have, right? Just let them know, bottom line, priority resources and risk. And then once they make that decision, they're the one who's assuming that risk. So,
0: And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a student, I'll I'll never forget this discussion, um, a student, and that person was from Fort Leavenworth, and we were talking about briefings and um she told me that she was tasked to brief uh, an SES here on post, and she went through all of the steps that you would find in a, in a, uh, a source that talked about doing a briefing, color copies all around, bottles of water, uh, on and on, and um, standing up in front of the screen. And at some point, the SES, in the kind of the beginning of this event, said, would you just please come sit down beside me and walk me through this and tell me what I really need to know about this topic. And um, I I found that to be um, a very refreshing viewpoint uh, to where we we break down this formality and we have a conversation between leader and subordinate about whatever the topic is, rather than what we kind of see a lot of times, which is, an attempt to uh, put on a display, uh, or to put on a show, or kind of fill the air with a lot of uh, bromides that kind of don't move the discussion forward. So let's let's talk about uh, something that has talked about a lot in all of our classrooms, and that is critical thinking, and it's the the Paul and Elder theories that we talk about. Uh, regarding critical thinking, and how do those principles relate to this idea of good leaders ask better questions? Sure, David. So based on the all the literature by uh, Dr.
1: Paul and uh, Dr. Elder on critical thinking, they have uh, these different components of critical thinking. So uh, you have the universal intellectual standards, you have the elements of thought, you have the intellectual traits or virtues. Uh, And what we typically talk about in our critical thinking lessons uh, in the advanced course is the different ways we apply these to test the quality and the completeness of our thinking. So these are all ways that we can test the quality of our thinking, but how do we demonstrate it? I believe we demonstrate the quality of our thinking by the quality of the questions that we ask. So good leaders ask better questions. Better questions have a tendency to demand better answers and when you have this combination of better questions and better answers uh, that helps lead to shared understanding and better thinking and ultimately it helps us sharpen each other challenge the assumptions and uh, improve the organization
0: and so um, what does a better question look like so if, if i'm a leader and i'm i'm i need information from my staff Uh, and I'm trying to understand certain things, what are some ways that I can improve my questioning technique? So
1: something that uh, many of my colleagues and I uh, at AMSC use is we tend to categorize some of the different questions that we ask, and we try to relate these to emotional intelligence and active listening. Uh, So probably the easiest example I can give you is uh, this idea of a question of clarity, versus a question of judgment. And we actually just ran into this recently in uh, the seminar that I'm facilitating right now. So students are working together uh, on an application exercise. They're putting together a slide presentation, and one of the students uh, places some kind of graphic on a slide that is not obvious, that doesn't seem to make sense, and doesn't seem to fit in. So one of their classmates says, well, Why is that relevant? So that's an example of a question of judgment uh, because there is a judgment associated with that. uh, And based on the way that that was phrased, it's pretty obvious that that student who says, well, how is that relevant? What they're really saying is, I think it's irrelevant. Right. Uh, And that can easily put the other person on the defensive uh, and uh, that can be counterproductive. So a question of clarity On the same situation, so there's some kind of graphic on a slide that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm not just going to say it's stupid or you need to take it out or why is that relevant. I might ask a question of clarity such as, can you help me understand what this graphic means? And now I am inviting the other person to tell me more and to help me understand. So I believe questions of clarity... Uh, most of the time uh, are better questions
0: because if i'm if i'm asking a question of clarity uh, it invites me to enter into the mind of the person i'm talking to whereas a question of judgment can be seen as me making a value judgment about something that other party did um, and it can be very subtle uh, but student as students especially and subordinates will pick up on it when you ask questions of judgment rather than questions of clarity. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's another another way to look at questions, and I'm, I'm really interested in this, uh, one system, multi or no system. Can you just go into that and explain what that means? Certainly.
1: So uh, this is based on more of the research by uh, doctors Paul and Elder, uh, who are very well-known uh, figures in the field of critical thinking. So, What they're saying is that the right question is really going to be situational. So what type of reasoning is this question going to require? So what they describe as a one system question, there is one correct answer associated with it. So what is the boiling point of lead? What is the sum of 659 and 979? What are the dimensions of this room? So there is a right answer. Uh, It's knowledge-based. So those types of questions uh, are are really prominent uh, in those fields of uh, of science and mathematics. So that's a one-system question. A no-system question is a subjective opinion, and it's something that you can't really assess. So it's based more on subjective taste. So how do you like to wear your hair? What color scheme do you prefer in your house? It's a subjective opinion and you can't really assess it. I can't say if it's right or wrong or indifferent. Uh, Where things get really hard and we have to really think critically is when you have a multi-system question. So there aren't necessarily uh, a right answer or a specific number or anything like that. There are better answers and worse answers. So there's a lot more judgment associated with this. So how can you tell if an answer is better or worse? You can probably measure them with those uh, universal intellectual standards that we talked about. So uh, does this answer have clarity? Does it have accuracy, precision, breadth, depth, logic, significance, fair-mindedness, and so on? So because there's judgment associated with this, there's not a number. uh, There's a lot of critical thinking that we have to use. And probably the closest analogy we have to these multi-system questions uh, in the advanced course is in the context of army design methodology, uh, where some of these questions are open for debate. Uh, The questions can be controversial. Uh, Professionals might disagree on uh, whether this question we're talking about can even be answered or whether it can even be solved. So uh, if I say something like, well, should capital punishment be abolished? or what is the best economic system or what are we going to do about suicide in the military? Uh, these are all extremely ill structured problems, uh, where there's probably multiple potential solutions. Uh, there's probably multiple causes that led us to where we're at and people are going to disagree on what the problem is, what the answer is and whether that problem can even be
0: solved. And so, uh, a, a single system question. If I'm talking about the the range of a certain type of weapon system, there's kind of a right or wrong answer to that. But then, when I look at maybe a tactical situation, where would you in place these weapon systems? Uh, that could be a, a multi-system question. And uh, there's and and like you said, uh, there's not necessarily. One single answer, but there may be better answers based on uh, history, based on judgment, based on uh, doctrine, tactics, and the answer to that single about, – about the range. So you're looking at this piece of terrain, and, uh, well, this weapon system has that range, so this would be a good place. But there may be several good places – so what is the hesitancy on the part of people on a staff to go back to their leader, their commander, or the hesitancy on the part of that commander or their leader to to ask more questions? What is it that holds people back from raising their hand and saying, hey, I have, have a couple of questions I'd like, to, to address, like y'all to address? What keeps us from doing that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what I've observed is there's three emotions behind why we don't ask more. And I think the first one is ego. So we're too proud to admit that we don't know something. Another one is apathy. We don't care enough to ask. And the third one, and this is what I'd like to explore a bit further, is fear. We're afraid that we might be chastised or that will be viewed as incompetent, or that everyone who's listening to us will reduce us in whatever their estimation is of us. So as leaders, we set the tone, uh, we set that climate and create the environment. So what I challenge leaders to do is to create an environment that encourages people to be curious. If your people are curious, they're going to be more creative. And if they're more creative... They're probably going to find better ways of doing business to improve the organization. Do your people feel safe admitting they don't know the answer to your question? Do your people feel safe in questioning you or asking for clarification? Uh, Can people embrace being wrong as an opportunity for learning and growth? Uh, And I've been in quite a few organizations, and some of our students have, uh, have shared the same sentiment about if people feel safe admitting they don't know something. Uh, So if I'm at some kind of a briefing or an engagement and the senior leader asks a question that nobody has the answer to. So if the senior leader asks, how many left-handed Paraguayans do we have? And nobody knows. What I typically see is people have this impulse to, I describe it as tap dance, right? So they will just try to make something up on the spot. It takes a really long time to get nowhere. Uh, And sometimes that senior leader will start to take more and more control of the conversation away from you, and that can become very uncomfortable. So what I would offer is if you don't have the answer, I think you should just admit it and follow up down the road. So I would consider responses like, sir, I don't have that information. I'll take that as a do out or ma'am. That's a great question. We should have thought of that. We'll find out and we'll follow up. Uh, And normally that the issue ends there and you move on. Uh, What I would caveat this suggestion with is if your answer to every single question every single time is, well, I don't know, but I'll have to go find out, then maybe you should spend a little bit more time preparing for your briefings and engagements.
0: And this is uh, a little bit off topic, but I I love this story. I, I was mobilized several years ago and, um, One of the hottest SABO rounds I ever saw hit somebody's face was when a lieutenant colonel responded to a three-star general continually during a a briefing with this phrase, uh, no problem. And um, after about three or four rounds of that, the general said, "I, I know it's not a problem. I don't need you to tell me that it's not a problem. I want you to get this information and find out. And I don't need you to t- and if it is a problem, then I still want you to get it. Um that was a kind of an un- unpleasant uh event for many of us sitting in the room. I can imagine. <laughs> and so um we've kinda exhausted this topic, but I have a few more things I wanted to to talk about and the before we move on, what are some other uh sources that people might go to? to find out more about uh, this idea of good leaders ask better questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one resource, and uh, this has been a go-to for me, uh, going back to Dr. Linda Elder and Dr. Richard Paul. So uh, they have a booklet called The Art of Asking Essential Questions. Uh, This is from the Foundation for Critical Thinking. Um, They have a website uh, I'm not sure if there's a there's a cost or not, but I believe you can find that on the internet. It's called the a- the art of asking essential questions. Um, something else that's a, a great book that I've referred to a few times uh, is a book called Questions Are the Answer, uh, written
0: by Hal Gregerson. And then that other book that you mentioned um, by Neil Postman and Charles Weingartner. Um, uh, that's not. Not uh, directly related to this topic, but uh, that'd probably be a pretty good pretty good source for ins- inspiring people to be creative and curious and not be uh, held in by artificial tradition and borders. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And
1: uh, in case anyone missed it, we mentioned it earlier, that book is called Teaching as a Subversive Activity.
0: Okay, I love that. Yes, we we got to be subversive. <laughs> and, um so I want to finish up this this little piece about questions with this quote. Uh, and I'll read this quote. In the word question, there is a beautiful word, quest. I love that word. And that's the quote. And uh, that is a quote by Ellie Wiesel. And uh, leader up audience, um, if you're not familiar with Ellie Wiesel, uh, go do a little bit of research and, and find out who that person was. Old people know, young people have Google, Gen Y has Siri. So whatever your source is, go and find out. And um, I just want to ask you, Ryan, this idea that uh, the word question, the root of it is the the word quest, what does that mean and how, how would that uh, help us uh, look deeper at this idea of good leaders ask better questions?
1: Sure, David. So uh, to me, what that quote means is questions are how things start. Uh, Answers tend to be how they finish, Uh, but sometimes you can answer a question with another question um, and allow that exchange to continue. Uh, And I believe the more questions that we ask, uh, the more that we can prolong that exchange uh, and continue to think more critically, uh, sharpen each other and uh, maybe reveal what we're thinking. Uh, at the time. So I I agree that question is a quest. um, And that can be how that dance starts or how that journey begins uh, by inviting someone else uh, to think
0: more critically. And so uh, thank you for that, Ryan. I appreciate it. I I, I love that quote. And um, the final thing I wanted to talk about today is um, you came into AMSC, Army Management Staff College, back in August of 2020. And uh, your time is Going at AMSC is going to end fairly soon, Uh, we're, we're pretty sure of. And so I just would like to get your thoughts about how this time at AMSC has made you a better officer in the United States Army and then how it has helped you understand and appreciate the role of the Army civilians maybe a little bit more than you did when you first came here. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: uh, I'm very grateful for my time here and for this assignment. Uh, I think this has made me better just as a person, as a professional, as a leader. Uh, Everything from all all of our conversations on self-awareness and emotional intelligence, which is so critical for us as leaders, um, but also just working with my colleagues here, uh, I am absolutely surrounded by opportunities for mentorship Uh, which I have taken advantage of, and I'm very grateful for that. Also, the faculty here, I mean, these are absolutely world-class faculty. Uh, I mean, I've never worked with better instructors, and they've really helped me step up my game uh, as someone who had a little bit of prior experience uh, working with adult learners. Uh, The way that we facilitate, I mean, is really incredible to watch, and I've never seen any other Army course that is close to what we do here at the Army Management Staff College. Um, And finally, just the insight that I've gotten about the Army Civilian Corps, I don't know where else you could really get that as an officer at this stage in your career. So I've learned a lot about Army civilians, about how much they do, uh, just how critical the long-term stability and continuity that they provide to the Army really is, uh, because ultimately civilians run the Army. And uh, I've also learned more about the Army enterprise itself, because our students come from all over the world, uh, from just about every command and organization imaginable within the army. So learning more about who they are, what they do, why they do it, uh, and also what some of their challenges are, uh, has done a great deal to broaden me. And, uh, I think that it's given me a bit more experience working with civilians than perhaps uh, a lot of my peers have had at this stage in their career. Uh, and if I ever find myself, uh, serving in some kind of civilian heavy organization in the future, um, I certainly won't forget all the lessons that I've taught here,
0: and uh, I'm very grateful for this experience. And so, Major Ryan Cornell Deschere, I want to thank you for uh, giving us your, giving the our Leader Up audience your time today to talk about this topic of good leaders ask better questions. So, thank you for today and for being a return guest to uh, Leader Up. We talked to you a couple of months ago about self awareness. Uh, another really exciting conversation that we had. So thank you for uh, helping us out with Leader Up and for serving in AMSC as an instructor. Thank you very much for that. Absolutely, David. It's been my pleasure. And so uh, LeaderUp audience, what did you hear today? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about asking uh, better questions and responding to questions? Uh, are you ready to raise your hand in your workplace and ask some of those deep questions? Are you confident enough in where you are in your organization to kind of take that risk? And join us again next time for another edition of Leader Up.
1: As always, if you have any questions or feedback or would like to learn more about our podcast, please check the description for our email and for our website.
0: Thanks for listening.